Well, hello. It's Pastor Wolfmuller with the What Not the Podcast, answering some more of your theology questions a lot. Well, do Reformed eat and drink judgment on themselves in the Lord's Supper? How can we require the, how can the Athanasian Creed require doctrine for salvation? Does the prodigal t- son teach synergism? How do we raise our children in the faith? What about Lutheran governance? And what about um, children who have left the faith for transgenderism? Those are whew, a few of the questions you guys sent. Easy ones today. Just really easy questions. Thanks so much for that. But I think uh, you'll enjoy reflecting on some of the scripture and hopefully some of the biblical wisdom in, uh, in these areas. I want to begin, though, with a with a prayer uh, from Psalm 119. Beginning with verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips, I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Amen. Here's a theology question from Mark about the Lord's Supper and the proper use of the Lord's Supper. Mark uh, emails, do those who consider the Lord's Supper a commemoration only eat and drink judgment upon themselves under 1 Corinthians 10, sorry, 11, 29? Is it reasonable interpretation in the light of the context, particularly verse 21, that Paul's use of body in verse 29 refers to the church as the body of Christ and not Christ's physical body? Assuming right use, the entire external visible administration of the supper in accordance with Christ's institution, we confess Christ's body and blood are present in the sacrament despite the denial of real presence by the ministers and all the partakers. Book of Concord saw the declarations, uh, Article 7, Section Paragraph 89. Is that correct? If so, the sacrament would not work salvation in the partakers. Would partakers then, though in error, be engaged in sin? by impeding the Holy Spirit's work from Mark, who says that's a theology question. But Mark, that's, by the way, theology questions. But let me let me take up one uh, particular thing. You quote the formula of Concord, uh, Article 7, which is great, and that can be accessed, by the way, for everybody on bookofconcord.org. That's the Lutheran Confessions. And Article uh, seven is talking about the Lord's Supper, which is really quite beautiful. There was a controversy about the Lord's Supper in the Reformation, which we all knew. And it's amazing to me that Luther wrote more about the Lord's Supper, really, than anything else in his in his writings, because the sacramentarians, Zwinglians and radicals and etc., said that no, the body and blood is not present in the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lutherans brought in this question of the validity of the Lord's Supper, and this has to do with the Donatist controversy. That means, what if the person taking the Lord's Supper doesn't believe that it's truly the body and blood of Jesus? Or what if the person administering the Lord's Supper doesn't believe that it's the body and blood of Jesus? Does that mean it's not the body and the blood? And so paragraph 89 says, now it's not our faith that makes the sacrament, but only the true word and institution of our almighty God and Savior, Jesus Christ, which always is and remains efficacious in the Christian church and is not invalidated or rendered ineffectuous by the worthiness or unworthiness of the minister, nor by the unbelief of the one who receives it. Just as the gospel, even though godless hearers do not believe it, 
yet is and remains nonetheless the true gospel, only it does not work for salvation in the unbelieving. So whether those who receive the sacrament believe or do not believe, Christ remains nonetheless true in his words when he says, Take, eat, this is my body, and affects this, his presence, not by our faith, but by his omnipotence, acting according to the word. So we can be sure that even if the minister is a wicked, unrepentant unbeliever or the people going are unbelievers, still the Lord Jesus is there. But there's a caveat here, Mark, and and for all of you listening, and I think this is really important, that there is an understanding that those who do not confess the body and the blood or who interpret the word of God, this is my body, this is my blood, publicly in such a way to deny what it says, that they do not have the sacrament. So I want to put your attention on Formula 7, paragraph 32. And this is quoting um, a work from Luther, oh, 1528, I think, that these words, this is my body, still stand true against the fanatics. So listen to what it says here. For it does not depend on uh, the faith or unbelief of men, but upon God's word and ordinance, unless they first change God's word and ordinance and interpret it otherwise, as the enemies of the sacrament do at the present day, who, of course, have nothing but bread and wine. For they also do not have the words and appointed ordinances of God, but have perverted and changed them according to their own false notion. Again, that's the formula of Concord, Article 7, paragraph 32, quoting Luther in um, that these words still stand true against the fanatics. Luther will say in another place, that's on page, if you have the Luther's Works American Edition, 30, volume 37, page 367, in the same work, about 200 pages earlier, Luther will say, now the fanatics believe that nothing but bread and wine are present, hence it is surely so. They have as they believe, and so they eat nothing but bread and wine, and partake of the Lord's body, neither spiritually nor physically. It's very good and useful that our possession should not be scattered among the unworthy, but kept holy and pure among the humble alone. It's very curious, well, wonderful, really, that Luther diagnoses this question of the body and blood in the Lord's Supper as a matter of pride or humility. Those who can, in humility, say that we simply stick to the words of the Lord Jesus and we don't try to go past that have have confidence. In fact, I was just, and this is quite, this is really kind of a devotional thought, where Luther's talking about how what happens on the on the judgment day when we're called before the Lord and we have to, and we have to make this mm, confession of what we believed. And, and Luther talks that through. He says, you can boldly address Christ both in the hour of death and at the last judgment saying, my dear Lord, Jesus Christ, a controversy has arisen over thy words in the supper. Some want them to be understood differently from their natural sense. But since they teach me nothing certain, but only lead me into confusion and uncertainty, and since they're not willing or able to prove their text in any way, I've remained with thy text as the words read. If there's anything obscure in them, it's because thou didst wish to leave them, wish to leave them obscure, for thou hast given me no other explanation of them, nor hast thou commanded any to be given. No one finds anywhere in Scripture 
or in any language that is should mean signifies, or that my body should mean sign of my body. And so Luther talks about standing before the Lord on judgment day and saying, Lord, I just stuck with your words, and that's the way to be safe. So, back to the point, and this is a point missed by a lot of Lutherans, even by a lot of Lutheran pastors, when you ask them, what are the Reformed, what are the Baptist, what are the Anabaptist, what are the non-denominational churches, what are those churches who believe that the Lord's Supper is simply a commemoration, what do they have? And the answer is, they have what they think they have, which is bread and wine. They don't have anything else. Now, the trouble is, so they're not eating the body of the Lord, and Maybe, therefore, the Lord has graciously preserved them from the judgment that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, although I'm not 100% confident about that, but it seems like the Lord might be doing that. But here's the problem, is they have what they think they have, but what they think they have is not the Lord's Supper. It's not what Jesus has given. And so they're missing out on that particular gift. Even a lot of churches who, who say they have the body and the blood like the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, those churches have the body and blood according to the word, but they don't have the right benefit of the body and blood. They don't confess that the body and blood is given for the forgiveness of sins, but for something different. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe the Orthodox do. I'm not sure exactly what they teach. It's hard. I'm not sure they know exactly what they teach. But the Roman Catholics teach that the Lord's Supper is a fellowship in the representation of the sacrifice of Jesus, which is different than the forgiveness of sins, very different. So even the churches that have the body and the blood don't have the right benefit of the body and blood, according to the Lord's promise, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what does that all mean? Does that mean that people who go to the Lord's Supper in at the Calvary Chapel or the Baptist Church or the Catholic Church do that to and receive the Lord's judgment? Uh, we, we can't say, in fact, we can't say from the text, Paul, in fact, when he's talking about the judgment that comes from not discerning the body, says, for this reason, some of you. So the Lord would dish out that judgment according to his good pleasure and not according to some mathematical rule. It's not like everyone who partakes of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is getting sick or dying. Uh, even you, you, Paul can't discern that, and we certainly can't discern it as well. But what is our, uh, what is our work in this way? What is our hope? What is our prayer? Is that if when we go to the Lord's Supper, trusting in His promises, trusting in His mercy, confessing our sins, and knowing that the Lord has instituted this for the forgiveness of sins, then we can go to the Lord's Supper with a with a great confidence, and that's. And that's what uh, we're to do. That's that's what we're called to do. Um, here, here's formula of Concord. Since, Mark, you mentioned it, this is formula seven in the epitome, so the summary. And I'm looking at paragraph 19. It says, We believe, teach, and confess that no true believer, as long as he retains living faith, however weak he may be, receives the Holy Supper to his judgment, which was instituted especially for Christians weak in faith, yet penitent, for the consolation and strengthening of their weak faith. So that's, so when, so when we are called to go to the Lord's Supper, we go with confidence, not worrying that the Lord might bring judgment upon us. We go confessing our sins, knowing that we're weak in faith, but that's exactly why the Lord calls us to the Supper, to strengthen us and to forgive our sins.
So I hope that's helpful. Thanks so much, Mark, for the question, and God's peace be with you. Here's a question from Greg who says, I've been considering converting to Lutheranism. Attaway, Greg. I found your videos and podcasts very helpful in my journey. Thank you. I recently started reading the Book of Concord. I was struck by the ecumenical creeds. What first struck me is the fact that Lutherans refer to them as ecumenical when both the Nicene Creed, as presented, and the Athanasian Creed include the Filioque. I'm confused how they can be considered ecumenical when the eastern half of the church has never recognized these statements as legitimate. What really bothers me, though, is the statements in the Athanasian Creed that suggest salvation cannot be attained without belief in the Trinity as presented in it. Does this mean that Lutherans believe that a person must both believe in Christ and the Trinity outlined in the Creed to be saved? If so, what is the scriptural justification for this? I have a very hard time accepting the idea that good Mormons, Hindus, or even people who have never heard of Christ will be eternally damned. I'd really appreciate hearing your thoughts on this. Thanks, Greg. Hey, Greg, thank you. What a great question that goes from some really small theological minutiae to some very broad questions about salvation as well. Let's see what we can do here. First, this business of the filioque. That's the Latin term, which means and the son, and was a term of controversy. In fact, it is pointed to as the chief point of controversy between the Eastern and the Western church during the Great Schism in the 11th, 10th century, 1050s, uh, when the church split officially, broke uh, apart from each other. And it is a question of, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father alone or from the Father and the Son? The original articulation of the Nicene Creed did not have it, which was from 325, even as it was expanded in 381 in Constantinople. The Filioque wasn't a part of it. The Filioque came along later in the Western Church, and the Eastern Church said, hey, you didn't do that with us. And so that caused quite a stir. It was, I wonder if it was really a theological thing or more of a procedural thing. Hey, you can't add anything without our input or not. But I do think that it's, it's solidified into a theological difference. But just to think about it, Greg, in the Reformation, the, the Lutherans were firmly in the Western tradition of the church. And so if they would have accepted, for example, the Nicene Creed without the Filioque, they would have been breaking from that tradition and joining a different tradition. So it wasn't really in their mind to be breaking from the received uh, uh, confession of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, at all. That was not their that was not their particular controversy. There have been conversations between the Lutherans and the Eastern Orthodox and a lot of that has been about the filioque. Again, uh, we could probably do, I, I probably need to do a video or some independent podcast just about that question of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father or from the Father and from the Son and what that means and what's the biblical ground of that. I think the Western church is um, has a lot of scripture to support uh, that particular doctrine. But uh, you say what really bothers you is the statements in the Athanasian Creed about the necessity of believing in the doctrine of the Trinity to be saved. Let's think about this in a couple of different ways. Uh, first, uh, let me give you a picture. And Pastor Melius was giving this picture to the kids at the catechism treat this summer. And it was fantastic from Dr. Marquardt, who's in heaven, and you'll get to meet him there in the resurrection, a great teacher and confessor of the faith. And uh, and Dr. Marquardt gave this example of why we have the creeds and why we have even the Book of Concord and all these 
particular doctrinal statements. It says, if you imagine if you went to go buy a used car and you signed the contract that you're buying the car and you came back the next day and the car was there, but the wheels were gone and the engine was gone and the seats were gone. And and you said to the guy selling the car, you're like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, I bought the car. And the guy said, well, yeah, but you didn't say anything about the wheels or the seats of the engine. Here's the car, but. So then the next time you go to buy a car, you have to write a contract that says, I'm buying this car with the wheels and the engine and the seat. And you go and you pick it up and it's got all those things, but it's missing all the mirrors, all the rear view mirrors. And, and uh, um, who knows what else is missing? The transmission is not there. So the next time you got buy a car, you got to say, including the mirrors and including the transmission. And, and the contract gets longer and longer and longer. The every time someone tries to take something away. So our confession of the faith, Jesus is Lord, gets longer and longer every time a heretic tries to take something away from us, steal the fullness of what we have in uh, in God himself and what he's taught us from the prophets and the apostles. So we have to say, well, God made heaven and earth. And we have to say, no, Jesus is very God of very God. And we have to say, no, the uh, the Son is begotten of the Father. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and so forth. So our confession of the faith gets longer and longer. When someone says, no, you're saved by a mixture of faith and love, we have to come along and say, no, faith alone justifies and so forth and so on. And so the confession of faith, as the Lord wills, uh, continues to expand. And we know the Lord wills it because Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, whoever confesses me before men, I'll confess before my Father in heaven. So the Athanasian Creed is preserving what the Lord has told us of himself in the scriptures from heretics who would steal that confession away from us. Now, does that mean that someone who hasn't studied the words of the Athanasian Creed or adopted and memorized the language of the Athanasian Creed is not saved? No, that's not what it means. What it means is that anyone who would um, who would believe an error regarding the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and regarding the incarnation of Jesus and would hold on to that error willingly even after being confronted with the truth of the Scriptures that they've departed from the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And so that's the that's the danger that the Athanasian Creed is getting after. It's not saying that you have to pass like a you have to get an A-plus on some sort of theological examination about the doctrine of the Trinity in order to be a Christian. No. It's saying that all those errors that take away from the truth of the confession of the Trinity are dangerous to our salvation, which is how I think we should think of theological error. Uh, Like a cancer or another disease, it doesn't automatically kill you, but if it sits there untreated, it eventually will grow and get to you. So theological error doesn't automatically kill faith, but it's always taking away from the strength and vitality of our faith, and eventually it gets to you. Now, one of the uh, uh, what is the scriptural justification? Greg asked. I, I would say that um, that Jesus, for example, Jesus and John will say, "This is eternal life that they know me." and the one who sent me. So that uh, our eternal life is not bound up to our doing 
or to our achieving or to our accomplishing or to our living, but to our knowing Jesus and the Father who sent him and the Son and the, and the Spirit who confesses him. So to confess that Jesus is Lord is, is to believe and to be saved. Salvation is a matter of faith. Now, this then gets to the last question. I have a very hard time accepting the idea that good Mormons, Hindus, or even people who have never heard of Christ will be eternally damned. There, it, is, it is almost unthinkable that there will be people who are eternally condemned and cast away from the face of God. And Greg, I also have a hard time with that. And we should be comforted that Jesus also has a hard time with that. And so does God the Father and the Holy Spirit. It says in the scriptures that the Lord desires for none to to fall away, for none to come into judgment, for none to come into wrath. The Lord does not delight in the death of the unbeliever. The Lord himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, desires all people to repent and to be saved. And so just like it's almost unimaginable for us to think of hell and the condemnation of eternal damnation, it is even more unimaginable for the Lord who, in order to avoid people coming into judgment, came down from heaven, took upon himself our own flesh and blood, died on the cross in our place in order to win for us eternal life with God the Father, and he brings that to us. So we confess universal grace, which means that God the Father wills the salvation, truly wills and desires the salvation of all people, that God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has won the forgiveness of sins for all people, and that God the Holy Spirit is working in the life of every single person to bring them through the word, the good news of the gospel and the forgiveness of all sins. Now, how the Holy Spirit is doing that, how the Holy Spirit is working in every corner of the world where we can't see how that's happening is a spiritual mystery that we confess. It could be a historical fact. I mean, the fact that every nation can trace its lineage back to to Noah, who had the gospel, and it somehow kind of carried along in the hidden traditions of every culture. It could be that the Holy Spirit is actually just managing to get the word to every single person and so forth. But we know from the scripture that even those who do come into judgment have no excuse. So this is Romans chapter 1 where Paul says this, that the Gentiles have no excuse when they stand before the judgment seat of God and come into their well-deserved condemnation. And we know that all of us, in fact, deserve that condemnation from God and that it's only by his grace and mercy that we're preserved from that. But um, there's no, there will be no claiming on the last day, hey, I never heard of this or hey, I never had a chance. There will be no excuse. That's the, that's the text that we have from Romans chapter 1. So even though it's a hard doctrine that there will be those who are damned, uh, we are taught that by the scriptures. But we're not supposed to like it. In fact, the fact that you have a hard time with that is good because that's what God wants us to do, to have a hard time with that. And so we pray and endeavor when the Lord gives us opportunity to make his love known so that the Holy Spirit would continue to call and gather and enlighten and sanctify and keep his holy Christian church on earth. 
So hopefully that's helpful, Greg. Great questions. What a wide ranging number of questions here. And I hope that this answer is helpful to you. God's peace be with you. Timothy asks, Hello, Pastor Wolfmuller. I recently read through the parable of the prodigal son and found an aspect of it that I hadn't really noticed before. In Luke 15, 17 to 20, the prodigal son chooses to return to the father. But this seems to point towards synergism as the son chooses to return to the father even before the father runs to him and pulls him in. Thank you. May God bless you and keep you from Timothy. Thank you, Timothy. What a beautiful parable also that Jesus is telling us. In fact, the three parables of repentance in Luke 15 are all really quite, quite wonderful. Uh, we want to be careful when we get to the parables of not of not using the parables against the uh, dogmatic teachings or assertions of the epistles in other places. Uh, and so when we when we read, for example, in Paul, who says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the mind of the flesh cannot receive the things of the spirit, or in Ephesians 2, that we're dead in trespasses and sins, and so forth, that we, we know that conversion and being willing instead of unwilling is a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we wanted to, we could probably say, well, look, the son was a Christian before, and he was a, a apostatizing. He was baptized, but he was wandering. And so there was a a sense that his will was not as bound as it might have been in complete unbelief. But here I think is the best point, is that the son, the prodigal son, thinks that he's returning to the father, but the father has to rebuke him and say, that's not what I want. In other words, the son says, come and I'll, uh, he says, uh, uh, father, I'm not worthy to be called your sons, make me as one of your hired hands. It's it's not the word slave there. It's really, the word is misthos, uh, the, a wage earner. Make me as one of your, you know, the guys that are, are standing on the corner that in the, in the parable of the vineyard and he goes and he gets them and hires them for the day. This is a day laborer. Make me as a day laborer. I'll work to earn back your affection and to earn my food and everything else like this. So he has this whole long speech prepared. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your misthosts, as one of your hired men. But the father runs and cuts him off, and he says, none of that. No, he. in fact, it's, it's really key to look at where the father stops the speech of the son. The son says, I'm not worthy to be called one of your, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he cuts him off. And everything that the father does from that point on is to prove that this son is a true son. Now, it's true that he's not worthy to be called a son. I mean, none of us are worthy. And certainly this son is not worthy. But the father declares him to be a son out of pure grace. He's done nothing at all. The ring on his finger, the shoes on his feet, the robe around his shoulders, the fatted calf, all of this is the father saying, this, my lost son, has come back. In fact, that's what he says to the other brother. Your brother, my son was lost and now is found. And so the very act of the father is saying, uh, you are not making yourself worthy to be my son. I'm declaring you by pure grace to be my son. You, you are not to come to God on the basis of your works, but rather on the foundation of his grace. 
And that whole thing is a setup, by the way, for the older son who also thinks of himself not as a son of the father, but rather as a slave. All these years I've slaved for you and you never gave me a goat to make merry with my friends. I've always done what you said. In other words, even the older son thought of himself as the father's servant and not as the father's son. And he said, the father says to him, son, everything that I have is yours. So the father wants sons, not slaves, as Paul testifies so clearly, and that's what's happening in this text as well. So if there was a thought that, hey, we're going to come to God, we're going to bring ourselves to God, we're going to do what it takes to stand up before God, we're, our act of our will is what gives us a good standing, the, this parable really smashes that to bits and says, you want to try to come to God as his servant, as the one who's obedient? Forget it, because this Gracious Heavenly Father doesn't want slaves. He wants us as his children. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. Such we are. God be praised. So I hope that helps, Timothy. It's a beautiful, great question on a beautiful, great text. Uh, Thanks so much and keep in touch. All right, here's an email. A bit of a longer email from someone who asked not to be named, but has a handful of great questions in it. it says, Pastor Wolfman, I've been listening to you for about a year now. I love uh, your work, and I have a lot of respect for you and other Missouri Synod folk, issues, etc., Will Whedon, etc. The confidence you have in the gospel as an objective promise to God's people comforts my spirit and helps me look outside myself to Christ. God be praised. Additionally, I'm drawn to the idea that you see the sacraments as more than mere acts of man done for God, but rather God's gifts to us to restore us to him. I come from a Baptist background. I'm currently part of a Reformed Baptist church plan, Acts 29, in North Carolina. Here are some questions. One, my wife and I are about to have our first child. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Any advice on how to raise the baby in the faith? I go back and forth on infant baptism. I see the efficacy of baptism in the Bible, but I still can't get past the every clear example in Scripture of baptism seems to indicate adults. Beyond the baptism question specifically, any tips for raising our children to love Christ above all things? Any uh, things that you consider must-have in Christian formation that I might not be thinking of because of my background? Two, at what point do you have to leave church because your beliefs don't align with a pastor? My church is currently very low church. We take the supper weekly, but it's seen as a memorial by most people. Do you think the Lord's Supper is what the Lord says, regardless of doctrinal belief of the recipient and or administrator? In other words, do you believe that Christ is truly present when I take the supper at my church? Hey, we answered that question earlier in this podcast. Hopefully you caught that. What is the take on church government in the Missouri Synod and Lutheranism at large? I hear mention of pastors, deacons, deaconesses, bishops, but then also presidents. Are Lutherans congregational or Episcopal in government? Also, I do find grounds for an elder-led church compelling from Scripture, in other words, the Presbyterians. What's your take? I hear Lutherans take exception to a lot of evangelical Reformed beliefs, but eldership is not one of them. Thank you. May our Lord bless and keep you. Thank you for these questions. Okay, so number one, uh, congratulations on the coming baby. God be praised. Baptize that little baby. It's great. There's some wonderful examples of baby baptism in the scripture. I'll grant that it's not as explicit as some people who deny it would like, but we have, for example, Jesus saying, go and baptize all nations. He makes no exceptions or exclusions for babies there at all. We have two examples in Philippi of whole households being baptized and no exemptions are noted there. And I think most clearly we have... When the people hear Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, they say, well, what can we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the promised Holy Spirit, and this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. So that the promise of baptism in the name of Jesus with the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit is for them and for their children. Now, some people say, well, that's when they grow up, and there's no mention of the babies in the household, and all nations doesn't include the children. Well, yeah, let's push maybe one thing further and look at uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus uh, is paralleled to the husband, and the church is paralleled to the bride. And Paul's trying to give a table of duties here, talking about how it should be with husbands and wives, but he can't help but talk about how it is with Jesus and the church. And he talks about how Jesus cleansed her, the church, with the washing of the water and the word. Now, I think that when we understand baptism in this way, as Jesus cleansing, as Jesus washing, then the whole question is kind of turned on its head. Because one of the reasons why we would exclude babies from baptism is because they can't make a choice, because baptism is something that we do, because it's an external act, and therefore it's understood to be a work of obedience. But here we see that it is, in fact, Jesus who does the washing in baptism. And every parent knows that one of the things that you're doing for a baby is constantly washing it. So God be praised. God be praised for that. As to the broader question here in part one, how to raise our children in the faith, this is a constant work of prayer and bringing them to church. Of, I think it's important to not separate the children uh, out from the grown-ups and to give the children a kind of children version of the faith, because when we do that, we're giving them something to grow out of. We, the Bible, it's, and here's one of the tricky things is when you are learning, for example, to read, you have your young readers, but then you outgrow those and then you get to your chapter books and then you outgrow those and then you get to the adult books. And one of the dangers that we have is presenting the Bible as a children's story. So there's a really wonderful children's Bible that's published by CPH and it doesn't, it has realistic art in there and it gives the scripture and it's a it's it's really helpful in this way and that we're not giving the the faith as something that's childish that you can grow out of. There are things that we need to grow out of, but the Bible is a book that we need to grow into. It's a work of constant prayer, of course, to raise our children. And if anybody thinks that they're good at it, uh, then you know you're talking to someone who's wrong. It's a case-by-case thing. It's good to remember that each child is also very different, and anything we can do to encourage their theological curiosity, the better. So to try, and I'm no expert at this, but to try to talk with them as we're standing up and sitting down and walking on the way, as Deuteronomy 6 encourages us, that's also pretty good. Second question, at what point do you have to leave church because your beliefs don't align with the pastor's? Uh, This has to do with also the Lord's Supper. I refer you to the answer that we gave earlier, and that is to say that it's not the faith or the holiness of the pastor or the administrator that brings the body and blood into the supper. But if the words are taken away through a false interpretation, then the words are also not there. So if the church is confessing that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic memorial meal, then that's what they got, a symbolic memorial meal, bread and wine, no body, no blood. So that is uh, indeed a problem because Jesus has told us to take and eat. 
his body and his blood. And if you can't do that at your church, then at some point you got to leave. It's always good, always good to sit down and talk to your pastor, to tell him what you're concerned about, to tell him the troubles that you're having. Um, but there's a lot of institutional mm, stubbornness when it comes to leaving church. So a lot of times what happens, this happened to me, happened to my family, it's happened to dozens and dozens of people that I talk to. You you start to see the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see the truths of the scriptures which are being contradicted in your church or your confession. And you wanna you wanna change the church and you wanna change the confession. You don't you don't wanna move churches, you want the church to move uh, to you. And that's a godly impulse. So you have to try, but just to be ready that these, that most of the time the congregations and the pastors are not quite ready yet. So after a few frustrating conversations, he'll be glad to send you on your way with his blessings to a faithful Lutheran church. I, I imagine that's what's going to happen there. I, I don't think we can give a certain rule on when you have to leave, but that's my advice. The third question or third area of questions here is church government in the Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Church has really from the beginning refused to make a law or a rule out of the governance of the church. It's really curious that so many of the Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic Church, I I suppose even the Eastern Orthodox Church, are they they are what they are because of the structure of their governance. So the Roman Catholic Church is the Roman Catholic Church because it believes the Pope is the head of the church. And the Eastern churches are under the authority of those particular patriarchies. And the Episcopalians have an Episcopalian structure, and the Presbyterians have an elder structure, and so forth and so on. The Lutherans, and others too, but especially the Lutherans, have refused to um, to give any particular rule about how the church must be governed or arranged. We see a whole various different kind of arrangements that the different churches had in Jerusalem and in and in Crete and uh, in Ephesus and so forth. When Paul's writing to the pastors, it seems like they have different offices that are there. And so the Lutherans have understood that as long as you have the preaching office, which is preaching the gospel, law and gospel, and administering the sacraments, then all these other offices are by human arrangement. So a lot of the Lutheran churches in Europe and even in Africa have a more Episcopalian structure with bishops and so forth. In America, it's more of a congregational structure with presidents, both at the congregational and district and synodical level. Uh, But we refuse to sort of make a rule about that, and we recognize that the orthodoxy of someone's confession is not in any way bound to their understanding of the structure of the church. The danger is when you get into this question of what is by human right and what is by divine right. So there's a famous little line when Philip Melanchthon signed Martin Luther's small called articles. And and he says something like, this is from memory, so double check me on this, but he says something like, we could submit to the Pope if he would recognize that his office was by human right and not by divine right. In other words, that he's the head of the church just because we've arranged it that way, not because God has appointed him that way. But that is a point that the Pope can never concede. But we're always looking at these things and saying, sometimes the Lord wants us to operate according to our human wisdom, and we don't require them by a divine prescription. 
So I hope that really helps uh, with as you meditate on this. And please do keep in touch. And thank you so much for the questions. God's peace be with you. Okay, here's a tough one. Uh, the person asked not to be named. You'll see why. My 20-something-year-old firstborn son has rejected his faith in Christ and has embraced transsexualism and Marxist philosophy. He dresses in women's clothing, has chosen a woman's name, and wants us to refer to him with non-masculine pronouns. Nothing but 100% acceptance of his new beliefs are satisfactory to him, and he tells us that if we do not accept him the way he is now, we do not really love him. His mother and I are very hurt by his rejection of everything that we feel is most important in his life, confused about why he would want to do all this, and very concerned about his present and future welfare. We never thought this would happen to one of our children. Please speak about this topic and inform and encourage the many other Christian parents who are sadly going through the same pain that we are. Thank you, and God bless you. God bless you, and thank you for this question as well. It is really heartbreaking and really really terrible. Know that you're not alone and that more and more Christian families, Christian churches, Christian communities are struggling with these uh, losses to the sexual revolution first and now to the gender revolution that's happening right under our noses. One of the first things to know is that Jesus loves your son even more than you do which is hard to imagine for parents, but also true and incredibly comforting. So that we have this confidence in the love of Christ, and that gives confidence to our prayers. There's something here in the spiritual realm where the the prayers that are given according to office are particularly effective. So as parents pray for their children and grandparents pray for their grandchildren, the, the Lord particularly delights in hearing those prayers and answers and answering them. Now, we, it's hard sometimes to see when when everything that we see seems like a complete rejection of everything good and everything holy. It's hard to see how the Lord is working in there, but we this should draw us further and further into prayer and into, into reading the Psalms, these Psalms of lament, especially that that bring our troubles and our pain before the Lord. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 3 and 4, and the, the 57 other psalms of lament. We, we pray these psalms also to the Lord on behalf of our children, begging the Lord to restore them to their senses. Because this is part of an, it's an insanity, but it's an insanity with its own logic. And the logic of the transsexualism or transgenderism or any of the trans logics is the logic of Gnosticism or what Luther calls enthusiasm. And that is that physical, earthly, material things are inherently bad and the true, holy, and right thing is my spirit or my inner life. And this old Gnosticism is the error behind Adam and Eve's fall into sin. It's the error behind rejecting infant baptism. It's the error behind homosexual marriage. It's the error behind transsexual and transgenderism. It says that who I am on the inside is the true self and what I am on the outside is a lie or an evil or something that doesn't matter that can be coerced and manipulated 
uh, for the sake of my of my insides. And so the whole world now has to be manipulated to fit with what I understand of myself on the inside. So that's the spiritual error that you're working with. Now, how to have these conversations, I don't know. I've heard great reviews of this. Is it a Ryan Anderson book that was pulled off of Amazon when Harry became Sally? And so uh, if you haven't seen that, I think that might be um, one of the places that you might want to start. And the bibliography and the conversations growing out of that might be a helpful thing. I would imagine if you start tracking that down, there might be even some support groups starting to form up for parents of children who are trying to transition. And I imagine some of those conversations might be helpful just to know that you're not alone. Now, one of the dangers is that you start to ask the question, what did I do wrong? Or that you see this as, as a personal affront, as a rejection of everything that you've done and, and that everything that you've said. And now maybe there was some sort of pain that is that's in the background there, but continuing to treat it that way really isn't going to help. And so to know that the Lord Jesus forgives you all your sins that you committed while raising the children. I mean, it's in our raising of our children that we really, really realize what terrible sinners that we are. But that's why the Lord Jesus died for you. He's redeemed you. He's not angry with you. He loves you, and he loves to hear your, hear your prayers. A lot of times I often find myself praying with people that the Lord would send someone else into their life who would be able to speak some clarity and some truth because a prophet is often not accepted in their own hometown kind of thing. And so that's a good prayer to engage in as well. But I'll join you in um, in your prayers and in your sadness and in your lament as we see these casualties of the gender revolution starting to build up and this insanity starting to have commonplace in our own culture and pray that the Lord would um, would also hear your prayers as well. So thanks so much. I'm sorry there's no magic bullet on this, but um, but hopefully this was a helpful reflection for you. Uh, thanks and God's peace be with you. We'll end with a piece of hymnody slash poetry. Here's All Mankind Fell on Adam's Fall, written by Lazarus Spangler, 1524, who I learned from Pastor Chris Hole was included in the papable excursus domini, which made Luther a heretic. That's kind of cool. Here's the hymn. All mankind fell in Adam's fall. One common sin infects us all. From sire to son, the bane descends, and over all the curse impends. Through all man's powers, corruption creeps, and him in dreadful bondage keeps. In guilt, he draws his infant breath and reaps its fruit of woe and death. From hearts depraved to evil prone, flow thoughts and deeds of sin alone. God's image lost, the darkened soul nor seeks nor finds its heavenly goal. But Christ, the second Adam, came to bear our sin and woe and shame, to be our life, our light, our way, our only hope, our only stay. As by one man all mankind fell and born in sin was doomed to hell, so by one man who took our place we all received the gift of grace. We thank thee, Christ, new life is ours, new light, new hope, new strength, 
new powers. This grace our every way attend until we reach our journey's end. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of What Not the Podcast. For more theology, you can sign up for the Wednesday What Not. That's where the name comes from, wolfmuller.co slash Wednesday. Or that's there on the sidebar on every page on the website. That's where all the theology ends up on the website as well, wolfmuller.co. And you can visit the YouTube channel, everything else there. There's a lot of books that we've published that are almost all free to download, including a bunch of Luther stuff and some... Uh, other orthodox theological stuff. So that's all there as well. So make sure to check it out, wolfmuller.co. Thanks again. Send those questions uh, also through the website, and we'll talk to you soon. God's peace be with you.